Well, it is always a small victory when you're three for three on turning your mic on before you uh, start speaking. So as Michael mentioned, I am not Pastor Mark. Uh, my name is Kyle Denny. I'm the operations and connections pastor here. Mark is still getting some much-deserved R&R, and so I'm going to be teaching today. I also volunteer with our youth group, and I, I've been doing that for five years now, and I wanted to go out of my way just to say what a privilege that is. Um, no one on the team takes it lightly to be able to teach to your sons and daughters. And so we just wanted to thank you for that opportunity. Um, if you have a son or daughter that wants to get plugged into youth group, um, come see me afterwards. Um, or maybe you are a, uh, a middle schooler or high schooler that wants to get plugged in. Rich Bruce is our youth pastor, and he does a phenomenal job. He's away this weekend, but would love to chat with you in his absence. So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18 today. There should be some Bibles in the pew racks around you. If you don't own a Bible, we have some in the back, and we want you to have a copy. So feel free to just go out and grab one. It's self-serve. There's some Bible plans back there, too, to help get you going. But we really want you to have a copy of God's Word. So I'm going to do something a little more traditional, and I'm just going to read this passage out in front of us. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. It's all the way in the back of the Bible. If you hit Revelation, you've gone a little too far. Uh, but verse 11 says this, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. The word of God. So we have our work cut out for us today. Let me pray, and then we'll begin to step into this passage. Lord, I thank you so much for the chance just to come before you and gather as a family, uh, a chance to hear your word, Lord. We praise you that you willingly disclosed yourself in the Bible, that you want us to know who you are, and that you haven't stopped pursuing us since the first time we drew breath. I pray that you would remove distractions from us today, Lord. All, all those things we have to do, the chore list, the fun vacation list, please just let us set that aside. Prepare our hearts, God, that, that we might hear from you, that we might love you deeper, and that you might be glorified through it. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Well, we believe in exegetical teaching at New Hope. So this means that we carefully examine scripture and we try to discern what the original author intended to communicate to the original audience. 
So this helps us avoid twisting scripture or taking it out of context. It's why we've been in Romans for two years and probably why we still have some time to go in Romans. Um, So before we really jump into this passage, I need to lay a little bit of groundwork. I have to set the scene so that we can hear a little closely what the original audience would have heard. First John was written by the Apostle John, and he was writing most likely to a group of house churches in and around Ephesus. It was written in 80 to 90 AD, and so that's 50 to 60 years after Jesus died. So John is an old man when he pens this letter. And he's writing for a very particular reason. There's been a disturbance in the church. We read in chapter two, verse 26, he says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So there are these people who have been rejecting the things that the apostles and Jesus himself said. They're deceivers. And they were saying things like, we have fellowship with God, but then denying that Jesus was both God and man. And it eventually comes to this messy split in the church. We read in in chapter two, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. And so John is writing to this group of believers that didn't follow the deceivers. It was a faithful group that stayed behind. But while they didn't follow them, there's still some lingering uncertainty in their minds. Could what those deceivers said be true? Do we have reason for what we believe? And so it's, it's with this backdrop that John writes to encourage the church, to give them confidence. These deceivers, I mentioned, they rejected the idea of love. It's why John says in chapter three, verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, none of you are particularly shocked by that command. Uh, I didn't hear any audible gasps. Uh, I I spent an extra second. I didn't see any bewildered looks. Uh, It's like you guys have probably known this since you were a child. Um, But John's church knows this too. John is writing, um, he's establishing some rapport with his church. He's appealing to their reason when he says this was what was originally communicated to you at the beginning. When you heard about Jesus, you heard that we should love one another. And he's talking specifically about loving our Christian brothers and sisters. Yes, we should love our neighbor. Yes, we should love our enemy. But the context that John has been building up to is loving our brother and sister in Christ. And so that's how we're gonna view this passage. Well, what is this idea of love that John is talking about? He commands it, and so we have to be sure that we know what he means by love. I recently came across a good video of young philosophers that are trying to answer this very question. And so our our tech team is going to put that up on the screens beside me. 
Kids are adorable, aren't they? My favorite was the kid that said he feels love in his feet. What does that feel like? So we heard different definitions of love. Some defined love as, as love. Uh, some defined it as your family or significant other. Others said it was being nice to one another. Some didn't have an answer at all. And a lot said that love was a feeling, a happy feeling inside. But the question remains for us, what did John mean by love? He's going to get there. He's going to flesh that out in this passage. But it's something that the deceivers have rejected. In verses 12 and 13, John says, we should love one another not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Now that seems like a surprisingly low bar, doesn't it? John says, what is love? Well, it's not murder. Thanks, John. That kind of seemed like common sense, but is his audience just really that dense that he has to clarify that? No. No, John is driving at something deeper here. If you are new to church or if you just haven't heard the story before, Cain was the first recorded son of Adam and Eve. He was the third human ever mentioned. And he was a worker of the ground. So he was a farmer like his dad. And he had a, a younger brother named Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep. So the Bible talks about this in Genesis chapter 4. It's all the way at the beginning of the Bible. And we're going to pick that up in chapter 4 verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. So Cain and Abel both bring this offering before the Lord. And if you have a younger sibling, you can imagine the frustration here, can't you? Full disclosure, I am a younger brother. And so I was shocked when I didn't hear a response from Abel. I guess that's why he's righteous. But I can't say a little gloating would have escaped my mouth. Or maybe a little elbowing to Cain when that happened. But put yourself into the story you brought something to God, and it wasn't accepted. You feel that disapproval. It stings. And what's more, your goody two-shoes brother, his offering was accepted. It doesn't feel fair. It doesn't even explicitly say why Cain's sacrifice is rejected. So Cain has this, this raw anger his countenance falls, his face falls, and he becomes visually upset. He can't hide it. We read on in verse six. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So God calls him out. 
God implies that Cain knows the standards. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? The ESV translates it a little easier. It says, will you not be accepted? The problem is that Cain didn't want to do it God's way. He had his own opinion on what an acceptable offering was. And he didn't care what God wanted. Can you see the pride that is rooted in that? That God has to accept me on my standards. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever discarded something that God has said because you disagree with it? Because it seems old-fashioned or unloving or just plain wrong from what you believe. Cain did. And he's livid about this rejection. And he doesn't rule over sin. He speaks to his brother and then he murders him in the field and tries to deceive God about it. John writes that Cain slew his brother, but butchered is also a good representation of that word. It carries the sense of a violent killing. You can read the rest of the story on your own about about what happens next later this week, but it is pretty heartbreaking. And so John is holding Cain up as the prototype of who not to be, not as Cain. He was the first recorded person to reject love and cling to hatred. And that hatred, it bubbled up. It blossomed into murder. This mindset was from the evil one. It is from the evil one. That's the devil's nature. The devil was prideful. He was rejected. And he hates those that follow God. That's why it says that Cain was of the evil one, because he followed in the devil's footsteps. The epitome of hatred is to take a life unjustly. And it's, it's that same hate that we see in the Jewish leaders when they demand the death of Jesus. Jealousy, hatred, murder. It's a terrible sequence, but it's far from uncommon. And so John seems to rabbit trail a bit when he says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. That phrase, do not be surprised, it signifies something important. He's making an emphasis. This church that John is writing to is feeling the hate from the deceivers, from that split they had, and they're shocked by it. These people left. Part of their community left. Friends, maybe family. And I'm sure they weren't polite and godly about it. These deceivers were arrogant people. And so John says, don't be surprised if this hatred comes. It's been happening since the beginning. And it's still applicable to all of us today. Now this verse about the world hating us, that assumes that we're doing what is righteous, doesn't it? Like Cain didn't hate his brother because his brother was a lousy worker or because his brother was a selfish brat. He hated his brother Abel because Abel did good and was accepted by God. That was the source of his hatred. John gets us back on track with verse 14. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. 
He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his murderer, his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You can see John encouraging the church, can't you? He says, we have it right. We know that we have passed out of death into life. It's an assurance as well as a reinforcement to love. We know that we're in life because we love the brothers. It's a sign of salvation, but it's not a grounds for salvation. Love should be the mark for the Christian, but it's not what grants us our salvation. We know that that comes from faith in Jesus alone. And John then goes on to say a few things that are pretty tough to understand. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I've read that three times now so far, and it's still a difficult passage. So there's three main ways we can understand this. The first is we can take it at its face value. That John literally means that if you're a murderer or if you hate your brother, then you're not a Christian. But that doesn't seem right. That, that doesn't seem to line up with the rest of the Bible. If we look in the Old Testament, you have King David, who in 1 Samuel and Acts says was a man after God's own heart. He's high up in the hall of Christian heroes. And yet he had Uriah murdered. So is this saying that he really didn't know God? Or in 1 Peter, 1 Peter writes to church and he says, do not suffer as murderers, thieves, evildoers, or troublesome meddlers. He implies that all are possibilities for believers. So no, we have to reject this ruling. This, this can't be the understanding of the passage. John has to be talking about something else here. The second way we can understand it is centered around that word abiding, remaining. So if we believe in Jesus, then we now have two internal people that are tugging at our hearts. One is our old self. They belong to death. It's who we were with Jesus or who we would be without him. It craves sin. It craves disobedience. But if we believe in Jesus, then we have a new self, too. It's a new being that loves God, that wants to serve him, to obey him on this side of eternity. And we get the choice of which one to put on. So this view says that if you're not loving your brother, then it's not that you're not saved, it's that you're abiding in your old self, that you're remaining in who you were, not who you are. If you've never heard about this truth before, uh, Mark goes into it in some detail in the early parts of Romans on chapter 6. Uh, as a time reference, that was back in April 2017. Um, but if you want to check it out, it's on the website, and he, he'll go into it in more detail there. Now, there, there are godly people that think this is what John is talking about, this abiding idea, and I can see why. That's what I originally thought was going on here, but as I studied and as I looked at the surrounding context in this letter, I think there's a different view that fits a little better. And it's the continuation view, the continuing to hate view. It's that we will stumble in our walk with God and, and there's potential for us to hate our brother, maybe even murder someone. 
as in David's case. But if this happens, at some point we should be remorseful. If a person harbors habitual hatred or has no remorse at murder, then it seems like a clear sign that they're not a Christian. Now John's using the present tense verbs when he talks about not loving and about hating. And so that's indicating an ongoing failure that who he's talking about has never really loved the brothers at all. And that would fit these deceivers. It's not that the deceivers lost their salvation. It's that they never had it to begin with. We should be able to look back in our lives and see where our love has grown, both our love for God and our love for his family, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and where our obedience to God has grown. And then John ants, uh, amps the, ups the ante a little bit, excuse me. He says that hatred is the spiritual equivalent of murder. Now, it's the same heart issue going on there, but that's different consequences, right? I would much rather my neighbor hate me than my neighbor murder me. Um, different consequences, but the same heart motive is going on there. John gave these verses as encouragement to his church so they wouldn't fret about their salvation, so that they would have confidence of it. You know you have passed from death into life. You have not rejected love. And John finally starts to define what love is in verse 16. He writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So what is love? What did Cain and these deceivers reject? John says it's what we saw Jesus doing. He laid down his life. It's a sacrifice of ourself. And Jesus is the supreme example of that. Now I know some of you have been around church for a while and you're probably thinking, man, I called that as soon as I saw the title. And I know it's a little toasty in here and you've heard it before, but try to see this with fresh eyes. Try to concentrate on this. We have a God-shaped problem in our lives, humans do. When you look at me, you probably see a decent young man. Uh, one gentleman came up to me afterwards and said, you're a rugged young man, ruggedly handsome. So all right, maybe you see me that way. But if I were to stand before God all by myself, apart from Jesus. If I were to rely on my own good works, he would see me riddled with sin. I, I can't get them off me. My good works will not cover them. He would see that I was impatient with my wife. He would see that I was envious of a brother. He would see that I craved food too much that I was bored with my God. And that's just a few from this past week. You didn't think we were perfect, those that stand up here, did you? God is a holy God, and he can't let sin go unpunished. No more than we can let convicted murderers go free just because. A price is owed, and a price must be paid. 
One of Jesus' followers, the Apostle Paul, paints this vivid picture when he writes in Romans chapter five. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So there's a huge problem. Enter God. Jesus comes and lives a sinless life. Does everything perfect. And instead of getting the reward that he deserves, he takes our punishment. He willingly takes our punishment. The people who rebelled against him that turned our backs on him again and again. If you believe in Jesus, you have now been justified. That's a big churchy word, isn't it? Justification means that we are innocent. That we can stand before God innocent. Well, how is that possible? When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die a good person. He wasn't just martyred. He took our sin. He atoned for our sin. And he paid the debt. The one who always had community with God was separated from him. And because of that, he took my sins, past, present, future, all of them. And he separated them as far as the east is from the west. And as if that isn't glorious enough, in that transfer where he took my sinful nature, he gave me his righteousness. So God sees me as innocent and righteous, even if I'm not always that way on this side of eternity. And that's not even the best part. The best part is that we get a relationship with God. Don't write that off. Don't just say, yeah, all right, relationship. Think about that. He wants us to know him. He wants us to do life with him. Heaven is heaven because God is there, not because of all the stuff he created. If you want this, if you feel the weight of your sin and you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, Come talk to me after service or or talk to one of the pastors and elders here. We want to walk through this with you. We want you to know it's freely offered. God's holding it out to you. Don't wait. Love is what Jesus modeled. It is who he is. And I'm still struggling to comprehend the depths of that. And I know I will the rest of my life. But love is sacrificing for your brother or sister when they don't deserve it. Love is sacrificing for your brother and sister, especially when they don't deserve it. Neither Cain nor the deceivers could bear that. Cain says, it doesn't feel fair, and so he takes his brother's life. Jesus says, I know it's not fair, and he gives his life for the brothers and sisters. We can take or we can give to our brothers and sisters. John says we ought to love each other in this way. Not because we feel guilted into it. Not because we know we should love one another. Because of what Jesus did for us. That should fundamentally change us inside. We should want to spread that love to other people. That joy, that forgiveness. 
Now, I know we go through peaks and through valleys, and sometimes we just don't feel like loving one another. Well, it's a good thing that love isn't just a feeling like those kids on the, the screen were saying. Love is a mindset, and even if we don't have the warm little butterflies flying around, we can still choose to love someone. John finishes this passage with the next two verses. In verse 17, he says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So I guess when you're an apostle, you can get away with calling your congregants little children. Uh, I, I thought of starting out that way, and then thought I, I would like to preach again, so I better not. Uh, it speaks to the love and the relationship that John has with this church, though. It, it's not said in an arrogant way. He's not saying, little children. He's saying it in an endearing way, the way I would talk about my son, the way I would talk to my son. You'll notice that John goes from plural to singular here. He says, we ought to love the brothers, plural, and then he, he microscopes down and he says, whenever you see your brother singular in need. One beloved theologian wrote, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. That's kind of like a punch to the gut, isn't it? John's leaving us with these two necessities for loving one another. One is that we have to have something that our brother or sister needs. Two is that we have to see that our brother and sister is in need of it. That verb see, it, it's more than a, a casual or passing glance. It, it carries the sense of a continual observation. The beholder understands they realize, they experience the problem that their brother is having, and they're faced with a choice. They can close their heart against their brother, or they can help them. Either way, it's a deliberate action. Now, I, I said I have a son. Uh, my son, Zeke, is a little over a year old. If you see him, he's one of the cutest guys ever. Um, but he's a quick little ankle biter. So one time we were hanging out alone in the house, we were playing in the living room, and I thought he was pretty well distracted with toys. And so I rushed through the kitchen and up the stairs and, and went around to grab something. And when I came back, I was at the foot of the stairs and I looked down and my heart dropped because my son was halfway up those stairs. Now he was giggling and he was having a great time, but I was freaking out because I was trying to imagine having to explain that to my wife, how our son fell down eight steps. And so I scooped him up while he was still giggling and he thought it was all a game. And I put him in the kitchen and I shut that upstairs door. And now I'm very deliberate every time, like he's taking a nap and I'm still shutting the upstairs door just in case. It's that same type of deliberate action that John's talking about where we can close our heart against our brother, and it's wrong. If we do that, we're not following God. We're abiding in our old self, 
and we're actually opposing God's work. Now, I know this verse is talking about physical goods. It's talking about food, clothing, shelter, um, but I want to be a little unorthodox and talk about a different need we all have, and that's community. With the rise of social media, internet, and television, we're seeing a rise in loneliness. People just don't feel like they belong. We may know a lot of people through work or hobbies or Facebook, through the gym, school, but we are known by very few people. And that's not just millennials or Generation Zs, that's across the board. One study I saw showed 20% of people consider loneliness a major source of unhappiness in their lives. 20%. One third of Americans 45 and older say they are lonely. And if that wasn't bad enough, this actually affects our health. This affects our well-being. I was reading a, a book on community, and they had a good quote in it. They said, researchers found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. People who had bad health habits, like smoking, poor eating habits, obesity, alcohol use, but strong social ties lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated. So in other words, it's better to eat Twinkies with friends than to eat broccoli alone. I think I saw half the husbands in the room kind of nudge their wives at that last comment. So I told my wife that, trying to justify my eating habits. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, but isn't eating broccoli with friends even better? (laughs) Touche, wife, touche. But God created us to be a community. I would contend that is a basic need we all have in the world today. And we all have that ability to meet someone else's need for community. If you're counting, that fulfills John's two requirements. We have the ability to meet someone else's need of community, and we know other people need community. Loneliness and disconnectedness is an everybody problem, and we have to continue to work at it. Now, I think overall we do community well here. I've heard countless stories about how this church has come alongside people in the richness of those friendships. But each day is new, and we can't rely on our past actions. Do we see someone that seems to be struggling with community? Are we still seeking new people into our friend groups? Or are we getting complacent because we found our clique? Don't reject love. Sacrifice and seek to help your brothers and sisters. And if you're yearning for community, I know this is going to feel raw for you. I've talked to people that are trying to find that community, and it's like we're standing outside in the cold, and we're looking in through a window, and we see people that are laughing and having a good time next to a roaring fire. And we just don't know how to get in there. We don't know how to pierce that. The temptation is to think, this church isn't meeting my need. They're not doing their job. There's probably truth in that. But don't let it lead you to hatred of the body. Don't follow Cain's example. That will only increase your isolation and your bitterness. Rather, continue trying to get plugged into something, 
men's ministry, women's ministry, small groups. We have an annual church picnic coming up on the 19th. We're doing a connection event at the end of August. Go to those and take an interest in someone else. Be bold and talk to someone you don't know and try to fill their need of community. Now, I know some of you are even doing all of this and you still don't feel like you're connected. If that's the case, hang in there. Stand fast and lean into your relationship with Jesus. Community isn't formed when we come to church for two hours on a Saturday or Sunday. We have to become a part of each other's lives. We have to be grafted in to one another. That's uncomfortable. And that takes sacrifice. And I'm still trying to figure that out with you guys. I'm not saying I have all the answers or I'm doing it perfectly. But I know we have to continue trudging forward with this. Especially before we move into a bigger building. And connections become that much harder to make. There's a weight to this, isn't there? I wanted to end with some encouragement, and it's that we follow Jesus. He knows what it's like to be lonely, far more than we ever could. His 12 best friends turned their back on him when he was arrested. He died on a cross. He had perfect community with the triune Father, with the triune God, and he willingly sacrificed that so that we might have relationship with him, that we might never be alone. He will always sustain us. He will always fulfill us. And even if we never get that Christian community that we're yearning for on this side, even if everything falls apart, we strive forward to the day that we will have perfect community in heaven, both with God and with our brothers and sisters. So let me pray and then I'll I'll send you guys out for the weekend. Lord, we praise you for your son. We thank you that he pursued us relentlessly and is still pursuing us. I pray for our community at New Hope, Lord. I thank you in the ways that you have blessed us, the ways that you've moved in our hearts, and I pray for more of it, God. I, I pray that our love for you would deepen and grow, and our love for each other would deepen and grow, that we would be a beacon for other people, a safe refuge for people that feel alone, that feel desperate. We praise you for your son, that he led the way, that he showed us exactly how to do it. And I pray that that would stick with us this next week, Lord. It's in your son's glorious name that we pray. Amen. It's been so great to be with you tonight. Have a great weekend, you guys.